Good to be back with you. We've got a handful of folks that are traveling, and so they'll be watching this uh, during the week. Just a reminder that any classes you've missed are available through Sermon Audio. You can just go to sermonaudio.com and look up uh, First Scott's Buford, or you can go to firstscottsbuford.org, click the link to sermons, and you can access all these old classes. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, ma'am. All right. Good to be with you guys. Let's seek the Lord's blessing in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for how kind you are to us. Um, everything we have, Lord, is far better than we deserve. If we, if we woke up this morning, uh, if we have breath in our lungs, if we have had at any point a smile on our face or a food that tasted good, or uh, frankly, if at any point uh, life has been even tolerable for us. It is exceptionally better than what we ought to have because our sins uh, have provoked you. Our sins have, have rightly made us, as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. But your kindness, Lord, has um, gone before us every step, and it is astounding. E- even unbelievers this morning have received incredible kindness. Uh, Father, we pray that as we talk about sovereign grace this morning, as we talk about the doctrines of grace this morning, we pray that you would show us a greater glimpse of how incredibly kind you have been to us, particularly in our salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good to be with you. So we're in the, the second half of the class where we will focus on what it means to be reformed. Um, You're going to hear that word a lot. You're going to hear that word around here more than you're going to hear the word Presbyterian. Um, Reformed is an entire world and life view, way of reading the scriptures, the way of understanding the church, the way of understanding the Christian life. Uh, And and it's really the the filter through which we see things as a church. And so I'm going to spend the next uh, today and the next four classes just really defining what it is to be reformed. And if you were to ask a handful of people, you'd probably get a handful of different answers on that. Um, But this is my class, so I get to give you my answer. Uh, And so we're looking at over the next few weeks what it means to be reformed in terms of our theology, our worship, our church government, and our world and life view. Um, So how do we view uh, ministry? How do we view stewardship? How do we view uh, the ways we spend our time and all of those things? All of it is you have a theology of it, and so we want to help make sure that it's a biblical or a scriptural theology. And so really glad you can be with us for this class today. We're going to start by looking at what Reformed theology is. Uh, A very simple way to answer that would be for me to hold up R.C. Sproul's book, What is Reformed Theology? And say, here, read this. Uh, And that would be a sufficient answer, but maybe not sufficient for the next 45 minutes of class. And so my intent is to give you an overview of what it means when we talk about Reformed theology, so that when you hear those words, you can, you have some grasp as to what that means. Um, And we're going to focus today on salvation. How is it that we come to saving faith in God? I want to begin with a story from Babylon in the sixth century, and it's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. So turn with me to Daniel chapter four, if you would. Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon from about 605 till uh, 562 BC. Babylon was a raging world power for much of that time. Uh, We know that both from scripture and from extra biblical sources. Nebuchadnezzar was uh, a great leader, at least in a human sense. He was was larger than life in a lot of ways. He uh, constructed the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He actually did so as a gift for his wife. Um, Glad Stephanie's not in here because that's a lot for me to try to live up to. under his rule, the Babylonian Empire was one of the most powerful kingdoms in the world, and Babylon grew into a very formidable city. You can understand the tendency that might have in an unbelieving king's heart, a pagan king's heart, towards great pride. Look with me at Daniel 4, starting at verse 29. Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, 
Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, if you know the rest of the story, the Lord really humbled Nebuchadnezzar, turning him really into a beast of the field, showing him everything you have is by my grace, by my giving, my providence, not your accomplishment. And I wonder, you know, if you had one thing you could say to Nebuchadnezzar in response, if you were standing there on the roof with Nebuchadnezzar and you heard him say that, what might you say in response to him? Retract that statement rapidly. Why? What do you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I was sharing with some of y'all last week. I, I think I was converted. I, I kind of had a moment of conversion, but really didn't have fruit of conversion for a while. I was reading Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And there's book three, chapter eight, it's called The Great Sin, and it's about pride. And I remember one time somebody had said, I was on, in college, somebody had invited me to go hear a campus speaker, and they said, or a Christian speaker, and they said, he's speaking on humility. And I remember distinctly saying, no, I'm good, I've got that. Well, I had no idea how proud I was. Uh, there is a tendency in every human heart to take credit for what God has done. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's surveying this kingdom. And he says, look what I've accomplished. This is a house for my great majesty. This is for my glory. You know, as offensive as Nebuchadnezzar's words were there, we have the same tendency in our heart when it comes to salvation. We are naturally born works righteous people. We think we can earn our salvation, that we can accomplish enough that God must reward us. You know, even atheistic worldviews and non-Christian worldviews have some system where if they accomplish enough, they'll reach some point of reward. That is the height of human arrogance to think that man can make himself presentable before God. Christianity alone, the gospel alone teaches that God has done everything from beginning to end. It's not our doing at all. We can't take any of the credit. Does that mean we don't try sometimes? We do. We do try to take credit for it. Reformed theology tries to answer the question, who is responsible for salvation? Is this the Lord's doing? And he works on his own. Is this man's doing? And we have to sort of earn our way to God. Is it some sort of partnership between the two that maybe God comes 95% and man comes one? Maybe God comes 99%, uh, or excuse me, 95 and five, 99 and one. Who knows? There are all sorts of ways that we look at it. Reformed theology teaches that our salvation is from beginning to end the work of God. We contribute only one thing to our salvation. What is it? Sin. The sin that made it necessary. That's the only thing that I did towards my own salvation is sin against the living God. Everything about our salvation is God's work. You know, uh, Sometimes in Christian churches, there's the idea that salvation's a partnership. Whether it's the 95 and 5 or 50-50 or 99 and 1, whatever it is, there's an idea that it's a partnership. And if you grew up in one of those settings, you probably heard the idea that predestination is a bad thing or sovereign election is a bad thing. Now, no setting can totally say that because the Bible is the one that uses that word. The Bible uses the word predestination. So if you were to read Romans 8, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And then the next verse, those whom he predestined, he also called. If you flipped over to Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption. Um, that's verse 5. Verse 11, you see predestination again. You have to reckon with this, ver this word, predestination. And the question that Christian churches have really wrestled with is, am I predestined because God looked down the corridors of time and saw that I would choose him? 
or did I choose him because he first chose me? Reformed theology says we respond to God by faith because he first chose us, not because of anything good in us at all, but because of his sovereign decree. Uh, And so we're going to focus on that today. We're going to do so largely, um, almost exclusively from scripture. But as you've figured out by now, I love using history to teach theology. And so I want to set the stage for you a little bit. In the last 500 years since the Reformation, there have largely been two main camps in terms of who is in charge of our salvation. Uh, Who is the cause uh, for which we are predestined? In other words, is it something in us or is it something in God? One group followed a man named Jacob Arminius. Arminius was a a Dutchman who championed, championed the idea that man is spiritually sick but there's still enough good in him to choose God. That's what Jacob Arminius taught. Uh, and his, uh, his teaching and his followers actually argued for something called the Articles of Remonstrance. And they were pushing back against the main uh, Reformation theology, which taught that man is actually dead in his sins and trespasses. As a response to uh, what the Arminian teaching was, There's something called the five points of Calvinism that are formulated. Those really were a response. They're not intended to say, this is how salvation works. We've put it in a neat little box here and here. You can have your salvation. It's not intended to be that. It was a response to a a controversy in the early church. That's actually where most of our creeds and teachings come from is in response to problems. So you remember the Nicene Creed came as a result of the Arian controversy about whether Jesus was pre-eternal, co-eternal with the Father, or was he a created being. Most of theology has been done historically in the context of controversy. And so what was given as a response to the Arminian theology is what's called Calvinism. You'll rarely hear me use that word, mainly because I don't think it's John Calvin's idea at all. You could rewind from Calvin, Luther taught it. You could rewind from Luther, Most of the reformers, even the earliest reformers taught it, but you go back to Augustine a thousand years earlier. He's teaching it and he didn't even come up with it. You look at the New Testament and Paul's teaching it, but it wasn't even Paul's creative idea. It's actually what we see mostly from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And so what we're going to do today is just look at the scriptures. Um, I'm not a huge fan of proof texting things and saying, here's my point. Here's three scripture points that help it. But because you can always take scripture out of context and you can oftentimes find a uh, find a counterpoint in scripture if you have a concordance or a Google. Right. But I'm going to do that today because I think that we're going to dive deeply into enough of scripture that you're going to see this isn't just proof texting. This is the whole teaching of the word of God, that God is absolutely sovereign in our salvation. And the reason you are a Christian is not because of something good in you, but because of everything good in God. Um, do any of you have siblings in here? How many of you have siblings? I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hands on this, but some of you probably have siblings that are unbelievers. You may have been raised under the same roof, had the same experiences. In fact, Reed, are you a twin? No. You're not a twin, but who was it? Somebody's a twin. And, and one, of, one twin was walking closely with the Lord. The other one, yeah, it was you. I remember you saying that. Why, why might there be one who is walking closely with Christ and the other who has run as far away as possible? Is it that Doug wasn't nearly as spiritually bad off? Or was it the sovereign intervening grace of God? I'm going to argue today, and Reformed theology teaches, that anything about us that loves Jesus started in us because Jesus first loved us. And through the gift of what we call regeneration, being born again, we were called to be believers. It's nothing due to me that I'm a believer. It is everything due to God. So let's work our way through this. Uh, By the way, one thing. Last week, I talked about the Westminster Confession of Faith. I did not get to the first chapter. The first chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith is all about how 
only scripture is authoritative and everything that follows in the Westminster Confession, it is only to be taken seriously insofar as it supports and agrees with what scripture teaches. So I ordered, I was only able to get four copies. And so uh, I'd love these probably to go to those who are most curious about this. I'm gonna leave them here on the table. But this is a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it has all sorts of um, verse references all throughout. Just to show you, this is not something a bunch of men sat around and came up with on their own. It was simply what they distilled down into the plain teachings of Scripture. And so these are available. Um, If they all get gone, I'll order more, but I could only get four uh, in time this week. Um, If you're looking at your handout, your booklet, let's look at page 29. I'm going to defend, uh, articulate and defend what we call Reformed theology or the doctrine of grace. How does God's grace come into our lives? And as I said, there's sort of five main points. The first point is the doctrine of total depravity. What does it mean to be depraved? Spend a couple hours with me. You'll totally understand what it means to be depraved. But there's a, a natural wickedness in the human heart. And there have been two views. The Arminian view is, as I said, man is spiritually sick. Things are not the way they should be. There's some major problems. But there's still some spiritual good in him. And man determines his own eternal destiny either by accepting or rejecting God's mercies. So the the Arminian position does not say man is spiritually depraved. It says he's spiritually sick. Our teaching is far less flattering. It actually says man is spiritually dead. Now, we didn't make that up, of course. That's the teaching of Scripture. Um, How did death come into the world? Through sin. So Genesis 2, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, It looks, if you kept reading, it kind of looks like a lie. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But Adam and Eve live on, at least physically, right? So what kind of death did they experience in the day that they ate of it? It was spiritual death. They lost all capacity for spiritual good in and of themselves. They lost all capacity for anything spiritually good. Uh, And that's the teaching throughout Scripture that sin came into the world and death through sin. That's Romans 5, verse 12, that's right there. And I'm just working through this scriptural support that the fall has resulted in spiritual death to all men. Probably the clearest teaching of this is Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 3. So you've got that on that handout or you can turn there with me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we are, in a sense, we, we are spiritually stillborn. We are born without any spiritual health or life. Now, that's not a spirit of neutrality. That's actually a spirit of opposition. So depravity doesn't just mean we're spiritually dead, but actually we are in bondage to sin. So let's keep looking. Uh, This is point two there under C. Jesus is dialoguing with the disciples, excuse me, with Jewish uh, leadership. And they're boasting, "We're, we're sons of Abraham, and in John 8:44 he says you're of the father of the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is saying they're naturally born. You have a disposition to follow Satan. You are born in sin, in the bondage of sin. That's what Ephesians 2 had said there. You're following the prince of the power of the air. That is man's natural state. And then third, fallen man, if we're left in that dead state, 
is totally unable to repent and believe the gospel. So if you and I went to the city morgue and we said, get up, we could say get up all day long. Do you know what's going to happen? Not a thing, except they'll probably call the police on us at some point because nobody thinks dead people can make themselves get up. And that's the background of our spiritual condition is if we are left to ourselves in our depravity without God first acting upon us to make us alive, we will remain dead in our sins and completely opposed to God. That's why John 6, 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. On your own, without the work of the Holy Spirit, you not only cannot come to God, but you have no desire to. Now remember, I started this lesson by saying there's a natural tendency in the human heart to take credit for what God has done. And we do that with our salvation. Jesus knew that. So 20 verses later in John 6, 65, he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So Jesus is saying there, I know there's a tendency in your heart to say, no, but I chose God. And he's saying, actually, if it were totally up to your will, you would never, ever, ever choose me. You would always be opposed to me like your father, the devil. So that's the first thing is total depravity. Our natural state is wickedness. Does that mean we're as bad as we can possibly be? No, I don't think so. I think there's restraining grace because life would be absolutely intolerable if I were as bad as as my heart would allow me to be. If God did not restrain sin to some extent, we couldn't walk down the road without getting beat up or killed or robbed. So there is this thing uh, in which God is restraining us from being as bad as we could be, but we can do nothing in ourselves to choose good, to choose God. You can do good for your neighbor. So you might know non-Christians that are, you, you leave town and you say, hey, will you watch my house for me? And you don't have any fear that they're going to break in and steal all your stuff because there's some level of what we'd call civic good. You can do good for your neighbor, but there's nothing in the human heart apart from the work of Christ in us that causes us to do good towards our salvation. We cannot merit our salvation to any extent. So the first thing is total depravity. Second, unconditional election. Why did God choose me? Was it based on something in me or was it based on God's sovereign choice? I think if you were to go into probably 75, 80% of churches in America today, you'd probably hear that it was the first that God's hands are sort of tied. He's offered the gospel to you. But until you open your heart to him, there's nothing he can do. Sometimes you hear it this way. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He would not force himself upon somebody. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, first off, we are his creation. And so he has every right to do with, what, do with us what he desires. But he's not forcing himself upon us. He is graciously showing us mercy when it's not what we desired. Um, And so there's two views of election, the Arminian position. God's election is based on man's foreseen faith. So the idea is God looked down the corridors of time. It was sort of a a pre-eternal Google search. And he searched for a list of who are going to be all the people who believe in me. Okay, all right, Evie's there. Let me add her to the list because she believed. Reed's there. Let me add him to the list. Ah, these people over here, they didn't believe, so I'm not going to put them on my list. I know that sounds silly, but that's really what this position teaches. And I'm not trying to make light of it. I'm trying to explain it. It's the idea that God looked down the corridors of time, saw who would choose him, and then he chooses them. I think the problem with that is it's assuming man's actually good enough to choose him first, that our hearts aren't so bad that we can't choose him. The reformed position is that God's sovereign election before the foundation of the earth is solely based on his will. That's humbling for us because we really like to think that we're the ones in charge. We we like to think that we're the ones who, uh, who choose him. Let me throw some scriptures in. Actually, let's start with Israel. 
Why did God choose Israel in the Old Testament? Because they were strong and mighty and easy to deal with, right? All the opposite. So you read Deuteronomy 7, and he tells us he chose them. Why? (laughs) Because of his love. There is no logical, I don't know if there's been a more unlovable people in the history of the world, and I'm the only one that can say that because I was raised Jewish. So I'm allowed to say that. The rest of y'all would be called racist or something like that. I can say that. I don't know if there's been a more difficult people in the history of the world than the Jewish people. Um, But God's preserving grace has been with them. Anyways, well, God sovereignly chose Israel because of nothing good in them. That's to be a paradigm of how he would choose the church, how he would draw the church to himself. And so, let's see. Let's just work through a few verses. Go down to John 6, 37 to 39. And I'm, I'm on page 30 by this point. Uh, this is point two here. So it may be more helpful for you to just track with what I say, uh, with the, what's in your handouts. Page 30, John 6, 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Jesus is saying, I came to accomplish my father's will, and that is to save those whom he's given me. And the language used often in the New Testament is the language of a bride, that God has given a bride to his son. It's a a bride whom he loved and gave himself for. And so Jesus says there, my father has a people set apart for me. It's not based on anything in them, but it's completely based on my work. Look down at at Romans 8. You, You probably know Romans 8 as well as any chapter in scripture. It's sometimes called the greatest chapter in scripture. That's a weird thing to say to me because all scripture is great. But maybe this is the most encouraging passage in all of Scripture. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to what's sometimes called the golden chain of salvation, all these links that go together for our salvation. Just listen to this. And I want you to listen to who's the doer in all of these things. All right, so I'm going to keep going. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is completely up to the sovereign work of God. He doesn't give us any credit for it. You know, if I could take even one percent of the credit for my salvation, that also means that I could mess up my salvation. I am so thankful that in the courts of eternity, my salvation depends on God's choice rather than my ability. That's the second thing under scriptural support. God's choice was not based on any foreseen faith or good works. Romans 9 is hard to wrestle with. In fact, sometimes you'll see churches They'll preach Romans 1 through 8. Smooth sailing, right? And now open to Romans 12. (laughs) We don't want to deal with 9 through 11 because for one thing, they're just hard. They're intellectually hard. They're also spiritually hard. I want you to look at Romans 9, starting at verse 11. Not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done neither good nor bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does that offend you at all, that God would say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated? It kind of offends me because really, I think Jacob's the more hateable one. I mean, he was really a brat. Yeah, I read him before he wrestled with God, and I find him to be one of the most obnoxious characters in Scripture. I relate to him really well in a lot of ways. 
I find this passage astounding, not that God would say Esau I've hated because that's what we deserve because of our sin. I find it astounding that the sovereign God of the universe who's seen even the thoughts and intentions of our heart would set his love upon someone like Jacob or someone like me. It can't be because of anything in us. It must be because of his sheer goodness. Third, under this point, faith and good works are the result, not the ground of our predestination. So the equation is, does faith make us elect? God chose us because of foreseen faith, or does the fact that God chose us mean that he will, in time, give us the gift of faith that we might believe. Now, if you're tracking with everything I've said, then clearly you know I'm going to argue for the second because I think Scripture argues for the second. God force, uh, he chose us before the foundation of the world, not according to our works. That's what Paul's saying there. Hey, look at Jacob and Esau. They were in the womb and God's sovereign choice plucked one of them out of the fire. Um, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Um, We believe because God chose us. Now, sometimes people will say, well, what about John 3.16? What does John 3.16 say? Good. And oftentimes people will say, all right, you heard John 3.16. It says whoever believes in him. Absolutely. Absolutely. God grants salvation to whosoever believes in him. That's absolutely true. Completely agree. And it's not at odds with what we're teaching at all. I think it explains it well that, that whomever God has predestined will one day come to saving faith. In fact, if you were to look at the Greek it, it most literally reads that all the believing ones, all the believing ones will not perish but have everlasting life. So how did they come to saving faith? Because of the gift of God. Um, fourth here, the term for new is often thrown around and it's, uh, it's, it's used as one of the proof texts for God looking down the corridors of time and saving certain people. Uh, he did it based on their foreseen faith. But when Romans 8.29 uses that word, it's not saying he looked down the corridors of time and saw what was going to happen. It's saying before the foundation of the world, he set his love upon us. Can you believe that? How many of you can look back at times when you were unbelievers and thought, man, I don't know that there's anybody more unlovable on the face of the earth than me. Have any of y'all had that experience before? I think of it often sometimes still in my life, but particularly in my time before coming to saving faith in Christ. And it's amazing to me that even in that moment, God loved me because there sure wasn't anything lovable about me. But his love began before the foundation of the world. Now, you know what's great about a love that began before the foundation of the world? It will not end. It doesn't end when I irritate God enough. It doesn't end based on my own failures. In fact, that love, we'll come back to this, that love that he set upon me before the foundation of the world rests upon me regardless. Um, God will keep me until the end. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, I know by now some of you may have questions and you're welcome to catch me afterwards. Sake of time probably means these are conversations to have best uh, one-on-one or me with you guys or you can ask Steve or any of the elders. Uh, this stuff, but I think for probably most of you, this is in line with what you've known, uh, what you've already believed. Let's go to the third thing, what we would call particular redemption. That in light of those first two things, man's own inability to save himself and God's unconditional election, when Jesus went to the cross, he did not just go 
to make salvation possible, but actually to accomplish our salvation. That was God's intent in the cross, not just to say, okay, now salvation's a possibility, but to say salvation is a reality for my people. Because if he made it a possibility, it would, a lot of it would still rest on us. But it rests solely on what God has done. So let's talk through that for a minute. We're on point three. This is page 31. The Arminian position says that Christ died to make salvation possible to all people. Now, the alternative to that would also be that nobody would be saved. You ever think about that? The, the converse of the Arminian position would actually be it's possible that nobody would be saved at all. The Reformed position um, teaches that Christ's death was actually designed to secure the salvation of all God's chosen people. So if somebody says to you, J.D., when were you saved? You could say 10 years ago or something like that, but you could also say somewhere around 30 A.D. when Jesus died upon the cross, he actually bore the full wrath of my sins. So so I, I can realistically say that. When were you saved, Alex? Well, January 14th, 2000, but also 2,000 years ago. On the cross, my salvation was fully accomplished. I think that's really what we understand when Jesus cried out to Telestai. What does to Telestai mean? It's finished. Imagine Jesus intends, he believes he has accomplished all the work needed for salvation, and then nobody believes. That would be possible based on the Arminian view that he has attempted to, and it would also make God unjust. If Jesus tried to pay the penalty for all people's sin, even the lost, those who would never come to saving faith, God would then be sending people to hell for a punishment Jesus already took. And so we believe scripture teaches that when Jesus went to the cross, he intended and accomplished the death, uh, the salvation of the elect, of all who would ever be brought to saving faith by the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that for a moment. First, Christ's death actually accomplished salvation, not just made it possible. Uh, look at Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's a a particular sense of what Christ died to accomplish. Um, Look at Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he may create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to, uh, both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. It's saying there God, that Christ upon the cross actually satisfied the hostility of God towards his elect. Now we know there is still hostility of God towards sin, and those who don't believe, because that's what hell is. It's eternal hostility that's justly earned by sin. So the fact that Paul can say the hostility has been dealt with, it must be specifically for those whom Jesus intended. Um, look down at point three. I'm, for sake of time, I'm going to keep moving. Matthew one You'll hear this in about two months over and over again during the Christmas season. But we don't think a whole lot of it. This is speaking of Mary. It says, She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who? His people, the people he came to save. Um, John ten 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If Jesus intended to accomplish the salvation of every single person on the face of the earth, then hell would be empty. And all the passages that speak of people in hell would be lying. That's not what Jesus intended to accomplish according to the scriptures. Look just a few verses later, verse 15. So John 10, 15, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Well, 11 verses later, he says to some others, you don't know me because what? You're not among my sheep. So I lay down my life for the sheep. You don't know me because you're not among my sheep. You've rejected me. You don't believe. Why? 
because you're not among the ones whom God has given. Hard on our pride to think that God, that everything about our salvation was predetermined by God. And sometimes it feels a little unfair. What would be fair? Hell for all of us would be fair. This is all grace. Um, does, was Jesus intending just to save one people group or anything like that? No. What's amazing is his death on the cross saved people across all time from every t- uh, tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, Revelation 5 verse 9 They sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation. My guess is if you're wrestling with this stuff and you've never really uh, heard all of it fleshed out, this may be the one that's the hardest for you to come to grips with. And I'd be delighted if you'd give me the privilege or Steve or uh, anybody, any of the elders, whoever. Um, Miss Dawn would be great to sit down with, ladies, uh, if you'd be more comfortable with that. But uh, just to flesh out, here's why we believe this. Um, Let's keep going. Effectual calling. Effectual just means accomplishes what it intend, it's intended to do. Sometimes we call this irresistible grace. And it answers the question, can God attempt to save somebody and they close their heart off to him so that his works are in vain? Or if God pursues somebody, will they come to saving faith? The Arminian position says the Holy Spirit cannot regenerate, cause to be born again, fallen man until he believes. So the Holy Spirit's hands are tied until you come to saving faith. That's that's this view um, from the Arminian position. The Reformed position says the Holy Spirit regenerates, causes us to be born again, all of God's people, enabling us to believe. So faith is not the cause of our salvation, it's the result of it. Um, Let's look at some uh, scriptural support. Point one, everyone whom the Father has chosen and for whom Christ died will certainly experience the application of that salvation by the Holy Spirit. Um, Look at John 10, 16. We've already read several verses from John 10. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Um, Jesus is saying, I've got more people that need to hear me. There are more beyond just the group that was in front of them in first century Israel uh, who would be his sheep. I, I think on his mind and in his words, he was actually talking about us. He was talking about the elect throughout all time from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Um, let's see. Uh, we, we talked about Romans 8, that golden chain of salvation. If he predestines somebody, if they're elect, if they're predestined, they will be justified. They will be adopted. They will be sanctified. They will be glorified. So in other words, there's never going to be a person whom, and I think this is going to be really obvious to you, there's never going to be a person whom God tried to save and failed. Man, I was really trying to change Alex's heart, but that guy is a stubborn little booger and I failed. That, that's, that could happen humanly speaking, but when we're talking about God himself who created the world in six days by the word of his power, if we think that there is any heart that is too hard for him to save, We have really misread the scriptures. And so his grace is irresistible. Um, Point two there just says he transforms us, and it's not based on our cooperation. It's, It's not that we kind of tenderized our own hearts for him, but he sovereignly did that work. And everything we do is in response to what he has done. And then third, under that point, under point four, 
Repentance and faith are divine gifts, which are the result, not the cause of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So my faith and my obedience don't save me. They're not what caused me to be chosen by God. They're the result. They're the evidence that God has chosen me. So just a, a warning. Sometimes this view, sometimes people say, well, you people are just the frozen chosen. You think God chose before the foundation of the world. Now you can do whatever you want to do. You can live however you want to live because you're safe. That's not at all what we believe. We believe if God has chosen somebody, he will give them the Holy Spirit. He will bring them to saving faith. He will give them a life of faith and repentance. And we will live by faith and repentance. And if somebody says, no, I I think I'm elect, but I'm not living like it, we would want to challenge. Are you living by faith? Are you repentant? those things. So they will evidence them. The Holy Spirit will evidence himself by fruit in our lives. Fifth, can you lose your salvation? If you could, I would have by now. In fact, I probably would have lost it a couple times this morning. If any of you are raising kids, you know how easily you can, well, let's just say it this way. You know how hard Sunday mornings can be. And I'm not even there most of the time on Sunday mornings. If you could lose your salvation, I certainly would have by now. There's really three views that I just want you to be aware of. The Arminian position is all who believe and are truly saved can still lose their salvation. That's actually a lot of of Christian traditions that teach that. Roman Catholicism teaches that. Many other broadly evangelical um, views teach you can lose your salvation. Um, second is the antinomian position. I just want you to be aware of that. This is what we'd call easy believism. Just accept the Lord Jesus and you're safe. You've got fire insurance. Okay. Um, I don't think scripture teaches that all who make a profession of faith will be saved because many people do that, not understanding what it means at all. Scripture teaches that all who have possession of real faith will be saved. So it's not simply, that would actually be salvation by works. If you were saved by making an outward profession, by walking an aisle at a Billy Graham crusade, whatever. If that saved you, that would be salvation by works. It's not. We are saved by grace alone. And that grace of being chosen by God and redeemed by Christ and regenerated by the Holy Spirit not only is the beginning of our salvation, that he is the author of our faith, but he's the perfecter of our faith. If I thought it was up to God to bring me to saving faith, but the rest of the way out is up to me, man, I would be a miserable human. Every time I sinned, I would wonder, was this the one that put me over the edge and I lost my salvation? That was life before the Protestant Reformation. I can't know if I'm saved. And the Protestant Reformation says, yes, you can. Because Jesus' work is finished. It's not up to you. It's completely up to God. And so those who are truly God's people will not only be brought to saving faith by God, but will be kept in the faith by God. Um, and so, for example, you, um, this is a major matter of debate right now, but deconstructionism is the idea that you can sort of be raised in the faith and then walk away from it because you've sort of been really more enlightened. And so people my age, people y'all's age, talk about deconstructionism a lot. What do you do with somebody who once professed to be a Christian and then walks away? Were they truly saved? The, the blood of Christ was truly over them at one point, and now the blood of Christ is not over them? Or were they never truly saved in the first place? That's what we would have to argue, is they may have had the outward trappings and the emotion of salvation, but never an encounter with the Holy Spirit, never truly transformed by the Holy Spirit. Those whom God has elected, whom Christ has redeemed, the Holy Spirit regenerates and he will keep us to the end. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. Um, Paul says to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It doesn't cause us to be complacent about the Christian life. I'm safe. It's fine. I'll live however I want to live. I know God's hands are tied. I'm going to heaven. 
it actually does the exact opposite. When I consider how incredibly God, gracious God has been to me from beginning to end, while I was completely opposed to him, he, uh, he redeemed me. He caused me to be born again. He gave his spirit to me. How could I want to live a life of rebellion against that God? And it makes me love him all the more. Sometimes folks will say, when you teach grace like that, people will take advantage of it. People who misunderstand certainly will. But if you really understand, this picture of grace wants you to live all the more for the Lord Jesus. Knowing that our salvation depends on him from beginning to end. That's really a summary. That was, I don't know if it felt like a fast 45 minutes to you, but it sure did to me up here. That's really a summary of what we believe about salvation. It is God's doing from beginning to end. I don't contribute to it and I can't lose it. I simply walk with God. I want to grow in my walk with him. I want to love him more. I want to serve him more. But every day for eternity, my standing before God will be dependent on what Jesus did on the cross rather than my obedience to him. If for one moment my obedience becomes the ground of my salvation, it's gone. Every moment depends on Christ and his mercy. If you're wrestling with this, please reach out to me. I want to to sit down with you. I'm not interested, honestly, in saying, here's what First Scots believes or, or here's what the Westminster Confession teaches. What I want to say is, what does the Bible teach? Let's open the pages of Scripture. You show me verses that you're wrestling with, and I'll, we'll try to come together to an understanding of how it is that we come to saving faith. Let's pray together. Lord, as we study these things, um, they can be hard to come to grips with for a couple of reasons. One is they're not very flattering to human pride. And second, because it may not be what uh, we were taught growing up. Um, What we want to really know is not what's flattering to our pride or what matches some faith tradition, but what do your scriptures say? So for folks in here who are wrestling with that and trying to understand more, uh, would you give them grace uh, as they seek? And me as well, grace uh, and illumination as we seek Uh, to know what do your scriptures say about our salvation. Our chief desire is that you would receive all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.